For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. For the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth that Jesus, that the Lord Jesus, and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? And then faith cometh by, so then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their mouth went into all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. But Isaiah is very bold, and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel he saith, All day long have I stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Amen. May the Lord bless his word unto each one of us. This time let us approach unto our God in prayer. Let us pray. Almighty Jesus Christ, we have had occasion recently to reflect upon what a glorious Son you are, even the only begotten Son of the Father. But what a blessing it is that we may also approach unto you as Lord, as the one who is the master and the overseer and the ruler and the sovereign over the souls of your people. That we may indeed embrace you in faith as our Savior and as our Lord. You who have all authority 
and dominion by nature as true and eternal God, you who rule over every nation of this world with a rod of iron, you also as the mediator between God and man, you have placed into your hands the special rule and governance over your church, that you may be the one whom sinners may flee unto and place their souls in your hands for well-keeping. For we know that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. To surrender and to submit under your lordship is not a burdensome thing. But to those who taste of the good things of the gospel, it is our delight. It is our privilege, it is our joy to speak unto you in this way as our Lord. And so, blessed Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you for this great privilege of coming into your house on the first day of the week. That we, though a small group physically gathered here, could yet truly call upon you in truth in obedience to your word amongst the fellowship of your gathered saints and that we may offer you the praise which is so sweet and acceptable unto your Father and unto you by the sanctification of your blood and spirit. We plead, O blessed Lord, that this would indeed be Blessed unto all of our hearts and souls, and as well as bring glory unto your great name. We know, Lord, that there are those who would long to be here, but for different providential reasons they could not. And so we pray, O Lord, be a blessing unto them where they are as well. And may it please you that this little flock, this little sheep fold, may know the blessing of our great and chief and good shepherd, and that you, O Lord Jesus, may give such a revelation of your glory unto us that we may be strengthened in the inner man, that we may be encouraged even where bowed down, that we may find consolation and comfort even where we are weighed down with the heavy afflictions of a seared and a wounded conscience from the terrible sins that we've committed against your law. What a great gospel you have revealed, and what a great Savior you are, and what a great salvation you give unto the children of men. Who are we, O Lord, to deserve the least blessing from you? How deserving sinners, each and every one, those who have broken your sacred commandments, those who are rebels and enemies of you by nature, yet you have embraced your chosen ones, those appointed unto an eternal salvation, and you have poured forth your Spirit upon that elect church, and you have united them unto your glorious person, and you have covered them with your precious blood, and you have brought them into your kingdom of light and love and liberty, redeeming them from the power of the wicked one. And so as we look ahead to that glorious day, where every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, we may yet savor of your goodness, 
your grace, your beauty, your kindness, your love, your tenderness, and your wondrous lordship. May this be what our lot is, to be among your people, to be submissive unto your voice, to be receiving of your good gifts as needy beggars. We pray, O Lord, that you, the good shepherd, would tenderly care for the lambs of the sheepfolds who are bowed down with different things. And think of our dear sister Martha Dyer, and we thank you for her, and we pray that where she is, she would yet feel strengthened and helped and healed. We know that she has a very bad virus and has a cough and has a fever. And we pray, O Lord, that you would help her in that, that you would lead her through this difficult providence, and that you would care for her even at this time of affliction. We pray for others who have serious health challenges. We think of Jane Vanderplug and Art Vanderelst and the others, Lord, who go through each week with different afflictions of the body and are not always known to us. But we, we pray, Lord, that you who know all things would, would comfort them. Thank you, Lord, for Ray Koopman and for his continued recovery, that he may, Lord willing, return home soon. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to shepherd his soul and continue to provide for him and heal his body after he continues to recover from this surgery. Please, will you be with your servant, Pastor Hank Bergsma, as he heralds the gospel this week and, and this Lord's Day he would feel the unction of your power and would receive great reward, even souls for his hire, as he diligently serves you in this ministry of reconciliation. Likewise, uphold his wife Gerda in her old age and infirmity. As well, we do pray for Jerry and Diane Rusink, that you would help them in, in their special season of life with all the difficulties that they have. And Lord, you know us all together. You know the burdens that we carry. You know the worries of the future or the regrets of the past, the unsettledness of the present moment. Grant unto this congregation the comfort that we need. We ask, Lord, for your care for this nation and this world at this present hour as we see such discord and such confusion throughout the land and every level of society, both among the rulers of this nation and the public and protesters, Lord, we all need wisdom from above. We do pray, Lord, for both the elected officials of our country, our Prime Minister, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and our Premier Doug Ford for their cabinets, for the mayors and police chiefs and police of this land, that you would give them the wisdom to rule justly and honorably in the fear of the Lord. And likewise, those citizens who are engaging in their right to public protests, that you would help them to conduct themselves honorably and respectfully, and that altogether, Lord, we will be guided into the truth of the sacred scripture and into the knowledge of Christ, who is the Prince of Peace. 
we know, Lord, that we live in days of wars and rumors of wars in Ukraine and in other places. And so we do pray that the, the, the leaders and the military officials would be indeed restrained from the full onslaught of war and bloodshed. And yet, as we've asked for such things, peace at home and peace abroad, and we must confess that we as a nation are unworthy of it, and as a world, we are in rebellion against you, and we deserve your wrath and judgment. Have mercy, we pray. Deal with us not as we deserve, but according to your great kindness, according to your gospel covenant. Reconcile us unto yourself through the blood and death of Jesus Christ. Revive your church and people. Turn us away from wickedness in our own selfish ways. Cause us to call upon your name in truth. And may it not be any uh, person or group of people that receives the honor and the praise, but may it be King Jesus, the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Be with us now, O blessed Savior, O great Lord, and may we come to know you more fully. We pray these things in the forgiveness of every sin. Amen. Let us now sing from Psalter 373, stanzas 1 to 3. congregation of the Lord, will you turn with me again to the book of Romans and the 10th chapter.
Read with me again in verse 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Well, congregation, uh, one of the reasons we go through the, the central doctrines of the faith is to ground us in those things about what it truly means to be a Christian. The Apostle Paul knew of this in this 10th chapter. He is speaking here about the very essence of what separates true Christianity and true Christians from all false religions and all uh, false Christians as well. He's speaking about the difference between the law and the gospel. The law, he says earlier on in this chapter, speaks like this. The one who does these things shall live by them. Verse 5, the law demands, the law tells us what God requires of us. It reveals our sin and our misery. But the gospel is different than that. The word of faith, as he calls it in in verse 8, is rather this. If thou shalt confess with thy mouths the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. The gospel speaks of salvation by faith in the risen Christ, but also it says in confession with the mouth of the Lord Jesus. And in the, in the Greek, it is two simple language, two simple words, rather. There's the word for Lord, kurion, and the word for Jesus, yesun, Lord, Jesus. And the, the force of the Greek could actually be translated in this way. If thou shalt confess with the mouth that Jesus is, is Lord. That's really what uh, Peter is talking about here. It's a claim about the lordship of Christ that characterizes the true Christian. The faith that saves them, the faith in the gospel, it manifests itself in, in what they say with the mouth, in that public confession of their faith. That Jesus is Lord. Now, if Paul would summarize this as at the very essence of the gospel, if this is what characterizes true Christianity, then it should be no wonder to us that every week in the evening uh, Sabbath service, we do confess in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus is our Lord. And this is Likewise, testified to in our uh, catechism, if you'll look with me in the back of your 
Psalters here on page uh, 41 at the very bottom. Wherefore callest thou him our Lord? Answer, because he hath redeemed us, both body and soul, from all our sins, not with gold or silver, but with his precious blood, and hath delivered us from all the power of the devil, and thus hath made us his own property. Let's uh, reflect upon what it is that, that Paul is saying here in in the word Lord that is part of every Christian's confession and, and will be guided as we, we go by the summary of this doctrine in the Heidelberg Catechism. So our theme is simply this, our Lord, our Lord. And we'll consider in the first place the meaning of this title and the second place the reasons for this title, the meaning of it and the reasons for it. Now, I think that it's important to enter into the mindset of the Apostle Paul at this point. What is it that we're to take from this title, uh, Lord? Now, um, it's used in different ways throughout the, the scriptures. If you read, for example, the historical accounts of the Gospels, it seems to be used in a general way for uh, people of importance. So it speaks of the lord of a house, or a lord of a vineyard, or, or things like that. And so I think it's important, as we would zero in on the meaning of it, to look at an example of, of how this communicates something in every uh, every society, but especially the the one in which uh, Paul was writing. I think that uh, the first thing to say is that the name uh, or title kurios or Lord it communicates ownership. Ownership. That's something that is also you'll notice drawn out of our of our catechism. It notes at the end that um, he has made us his own property. That's, that's kind of the, uh, the meaning that is given from the catechism itself. And likewise, if you would enter into the thought of the Apostle Paul, that is how he uses this as well. And I was thinking of the best way to look at this in terms of an example, and I think we... We can't really improve, improve upon what we find in the book of Colossians, the third chapter and verse 22. So I'm going to read three verses here to kind of give us a survey of what the apostle is talking about there, and then we'll sort of scan it and, and come to see how he understands this word. He says there in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, servants... Obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that as of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ." 
Now, the interesting thing about this passage, if you look at the original language, is that the very same word is uh, translated differently by the authorized version. In verse 32, it speaks of masters, but it's the exact same word that's used later on to refer to the Lord Jesus, the word kurios. And what is it referring to there? Well, there it is an exhortation that the apostle is giving to those Christians who were slaves or servants, as, as our translation puts it, at the time of his writing to that church. You see, unlike our, our own society that doesn't uh, have slavery in the same way, in the days of the New Testament being written, it was a very common institution. Slaves were, in one sense, you could say, a, a part of a family. They were, were integrated to the life of a household, and they had a certain kind of um, protection and respect under the law for that reason. But, all, but ultimately, it was uh, a very lowly and a very uh, undesirable role in society often because you were the property of another. You were the slave, and so your life was not your own. You went where your master told you. You worked on the things he asked you to work on, and you, you had no right to the, um, to the labor or the, the wages that you earned. You were a slave. And of course, you could be punished as such, and if you rebelled against your master, you could even be put to death. That was the context in which the early church existed, and uh, maybe challenging to our own society today, but according to uh, the, the apostle and really the law of the Lord Jesus Christ, slavery as such was not to be dismantled or um, or seen as wrong in and of itself. Of course, we know that in the course of time it was dismantled throughout society, but when it was a present reality, you notice what is instructed of these Christians. Obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers. You're not just serving your, your Lord or your owner as one who is just looking to get uh, a positive um, a positive commendation from your master as though you were just serving when you're being watched, but rather in singleness of heart, fearing God. So there was no sin in being a slave, and indeed there was much nobility in it if you were a Christian and doing so in the fear of God. And no one uh, here is a slave, and, and of course there's much, uh, if you were, for example, under the, uh, the ownership of a very ruthless, sinful master, there'd be much that would be very horrible about that kind of life. But isn't it striking that right after that, Paul is speaking about the identity of the Christian in relation to Jesus Christ. And he uses the very same word, Lord. Whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord, and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Jesus. 
You see, for a Christian, we identify as slaves, and we identify Christ as our Lord. Just as the Catechism says, we are his property. We belong not unto ourselves, we belong unto him. It's a very radical view, very opposed to the spirit of our age, which is about autonomy, self-rule, self-mastery. But in, in an ultimate sense, in a, in a spiritual sense, this is contrary to the Christian gospel. We, as Christians, are the slaves of our Lord. And... It's always pictured as a, a most delightful thing. You, know, you notice that, that it's almost as though the apostle is trying to comfort these lowly slaves by, by showing them what a glorious thing it is that they are ultimately slaves of Christ. It's put also uh, in a beautiful way later on in the same epistle of Romans uh, that we read from earlier in the 14th chapter and verse 8. For whether we live... We live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. So that in the, in the first place, this name Lord, it reminds us of the ownership, the complete ownership of Christ over the Christian but we also should speak in, in this way as well. It is about honor. Honor. When we think of the name Lord, the title Lord, we should think of the great honor that is paid unto the Savior. And likewise, you could find many examples, but I've chosen uh, under this heading to look at an example from the book of First Peter, chapter 3. Now, it's a little bit uh, longer, uh, this section, but I'm going to read in full to, to get the, the force of the argument in this uh, part of God's Word. This is giving um, advice and counsel to Christians who are women married to an unbelieving husband. And I'd like to, to read uh, verses 1 to 6 here. Likewise, ye wives... Be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. So, what is the argument? Well, you may have a husband who is not in obedience to the word of Christ, but through your conversation or through your life, they may be won over. And it goes on. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair, or of wearing of gold, or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price." So the emphasis here is on the modesty of the Christian wife. It is about the godliness of her that comes from the inside, the, the true beauty of, of a godly woman. And you notice what it goes on to say. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also, 
who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. So here we're talking about uh, the honor that uh, a woman should pay to her husband. It is a great honor. You notice that it, uh, in the case of Sarah, or um, Sarai, before she was renamed, she called her husband Lord. And this is held forth as the example of, of Christian women to, to emulate. And I think the point here is not so much uh, that, that everyone always refers to their husband in that way, or, or really they do in, in other contexts. But the point is the spirit of that. There is to be a true honor paid to a husband, for he is the, the head of the home, and he has a special care and responsibility for the wife. And of course, in a context like this that he's speaking about, he's uh, speaking about uh, husbands who may have been very, very harsh because they were spiritually dead in their in their sins, and yet even in that context, there is an exhortation to be respectful and honoring uh, to the role of the husband. And of course, in the in the whole context of biblical teaching on this subject, Christian marriage is a beautiful thing when it operates according to God's design. It's such a beautiful thing that it's actually used as a picture for how the church relates to Jesus Christ. And we see that in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So it's a beautiful picture that is put here. A husband who sacrifices for his wife, even being willing to lay down his life for her, loving her with, with tenderness and with kindness and a wife who who likewise honors her husband submitting to him obeying him this is of course why it's very important that we take great care whom we marry it's very important because if we would become unequally yoked to an unbeliever like these these poor christian uh, women then there can be great hardship for a woman submitting to someone who is, who is really not exercising that authority in a godly way. Whether being too passive or, or weak on the one hand, or being too authoritarian or, or, or even abusive in some cases. But the way it's, it's put here in the ideal sense is that marriage should look like the relationship of the church unto Jesus Christ. That's really uh, one of the most beautiful pictures of the, the union of the church to Christ, isn't it? We're united in a holy marriage. He is the wonderful bridegroom, the heavenly husband. 
And we corporately, we all of us are the bride of Christ, all true believers. They reverence him. We all of us, we address him as Lord because we adore him. We submit unto his every word as a godly wife does unto her husband. So that's in the second place we are to see in this name. Not only is it ownership, but also great, great honor. And the third and last thing I'll say under this heading, the the meaning of this title is that it is exclusive. There's there's a note of exclusivity here that is very important. And for uh, that, I'll, I'll stay in the book of Ephesians. But now to the uh, fourth chapter here. So Ephesians uh, chapter 4. And we have another one of these great summaries of uh, the Christian confession, what it means to be a Christian, uh, beginning there in verse 4 of the fourth chapter. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Beautiful confession, really. um, Every word is is worthy of notice, but the one thing I'd, I'd draw your attention to here is that to be a Christian is to confess one Lord, one Lord, and of course that's referring to the Lord Jesus, and essential to that confession is something that is so very countercultural, both then and now, because you see the days in which uh, the New Testament was written, there was another who claimed the title of Lord, and that was Caesar the great king and emperor of the Roman Empire, he was one who actually claimed divinity. He claimed the right to to rule over his nation as one who decided what was right and wrong. And he demanded that everyone in his empire, no matter what religion they held to, there was only one rule above all, and that was they had to confess, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord, and they'd actually have to offer a pinch of incense in religious worship unto Caesar. That is the kind of society that that was around the apostle when he wrote his epistles, and it's very similar to our own day, is it not? It's very pluralistic, so many different religions all uh, sharing our our country together and it's a multicultural society that that every religion no matter how idolatrous it is welcomed according to the official law of the land but the one thing that is of course intolerable is intolerance itself to be intolerant of others and to claim that that your religion is the only true religion well that is what we understand today is, is very politically incorrect and, and even deeply offensive in our society. And ultimately, what is behind that? Well, it's ultimately the state or the government that is taking the new role as God. And they are deciding 
what is right, and ultimately they are wanting to govern society so that all the different religions, they take a subservient place under, under the state. We recognize that today, and likewise, in the days of the apostles, that was what uh, the religion of Caesar worship was about. And so it was a very radical thing for the Christians to say, no, we confess but one Lord. He alone has a claim unto our souls. We would rather die, rather be fed to lions than offer that incense unto Caesar. Rather than have those accursed words, Caesar is Lord, pass from our lips, we will boldly confess, Jesus, he is the true Lord. So you can see that uh, this is of great importance, congregation. It goes to our primary loyalty. One of the, the great devices of the devil in every generation in order to destroy the church and the true religion to lead souls in destruction is to divide the loyalty of the professing church. Take our eyes off of our Lord, our heavenly bridegroom, our, our wonderful owner and sovereign. And to cause us to have a loyalty towards all the things of this world and any manner of authority that would set itself over against the claims of Jesus Christ. And of course we understand that, that all the, the different levels of, of authority, they are, they are honored by the Christian. Paul instructed his people to submit unto the government in all things lawful. He instructed wives to submit unto their husbands and and instructed, of course, um, even slaves to submit to their masters, as we saw. There is authority in society, but it must agree with the divine authority of Jesus Christ if it is true and lawful authority. He is, as he's called in the book of Revelation, the King of kings and what? The Lord of lords. And so when we speak of that true Lord in the proper sense. We say, together with all Christians, there is but one Lord. We recognize none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So that we see in the, in the first place the meaning of this title, and let's see in the second place the meaning, or rather the, the reasons for this title. And for that, I'd like to survey again uh, our catechism, because this is really what the majority of the catechism is addressed with, is it not? Again, to question 34. Wherefore callest thou him Lord? Because he hath redeemed us, both body and soul, from all our sins, not with gold and silver, but with his precious blood, and hath delivered us from all power of the devil, and thus made us his own property. Well, the first thing I would, I would recognize about our catechism is that the reason why we address Christ as Lord is because of his right of creation, his right of creation and, and of divinity. And, and if you don't see that as very prominent in our uh, question that we're considering this morning, it's good to see that it comes right on the heels of what we considered last Lord's Day. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, that he is true and eternal God, equal to the Father. And so it's very natural that this would flow into the discussion of Lord, 
And of course, it is how the Apostles' Creed itself is constructed. And that is, of course, a very important emphasis of the sacred scriptures, that the reason why it is lawful and right and necessary that Christ is our Lord is because he has created us. He is the creator as true and eternal God. And Paul speaks of this very definitely in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 5. This is what we read. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Now, the striking thing here is that Paul is actually citing one of the very important parts of the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, there is the famous Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Well, uh, Paul takes those, um, those two names in uh, God and Jehovah, or, or Lord, and he applies them here unto the uh, two persons of the, of the three in the Holy Trinity. He applies it to God the Father, from whom are, rather of whom are all things, and then one Lord, Kurios, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. And the, uh, the point there is that that word Kurios, it is actually being used to translate the holy covenant name Jehovah. And it's ascribed to Jesus here in uh, his role as the creator of all things, as the eternal God, the eternal Jehovah. That is what really grounds our confession of Christ as Lord. He created you. He created me. He created all things. He has a right and claim to everything. The very angels of heaven, they obey him. As we say in the, uh, the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We could consider how even the enemies of the Lord, they obey his decree from, from eternity. He has appointed even Satan and the devils and even the, the souls of the damned to eternal destruction. And he has ordered all of their actions according to his plan. And it, it's a lordship that encompasses all of creation, doesn't it? All the natural laws and, and phenomenon and events that we observe in the natural order, it's all, it's all answerable to him as Lord. And so how much more? How much more those who name the name of Christ who know these things in their own hearts, that he is the one who made us. And so he, he has a special claim to us. So that in the first place is his right of creation, but also his right of redemption. And of course, this is particularly what is emphasized in our catechism. And you notice how it especially says 
that he is the one who is um, the one who has redeemed us. He has redeemed us, both body and soul, from all our sins, not with with gold or silver, but with his precious blood. It's almost a direct quotation from the book of First Peter, chapter one, in our catechism. Uh, verse 18, for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. What both the Apostle Peter there, as well as our catechism, wants us to reckon with is if we have Jesus as our Lord today, it was, it was purchased at a very great cost. You think of the value of Christ, his holiness, his blamelessness, the very nobility and dignity of the very God come in our flesh. God and man in one glorious person and that this one should suffer and die in our place that he should shed his blood and that that should be the cost of our redemption that this who is the very son of God came not to be ministered unto but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many that he would pay the cost of our salvation that should be why we regard Christ as our Lord. He has not only made us as creator, he has redeemed us as savior. He has paid every cent of the cost of our salvation, redeemed us unto himself. These are things that a Christian cannot contemplate and be unmoved by them. No, when we come to rest our souls upon this Savior, when we come to see the very heights and depths and widths of of this great cost that was paid, then it moves us to say we must surrender our all unto him. It is a delightful thing to belong to one who would love us in such a way. That is the second thing we see here, by redemption by redemption but there's also uh, this his right of governance his right of governance and this is emphasized in our uh, catechism in a a rather subtle way I think but uh, what it says here is that um, he also hath delivered us from all the power of the devil and thus has made us his own property So what's emphasized here is that a great change corresponds to someone becoming a Christian. Before they become a Christian, they are under the power of the devil. After that, they are under the power of this one, their new Lord, Jesus Christ. It's something that is taught explicitly in the book of Colossians in the ninth ninth verse of the first chapter and following. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, 
do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So Paul's praying for those Christians. And what is it that he prays in particular? That ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. See, being a Christian is not just, well, here are a bunch of rules, will you now obey them? No. The idea here is that you walk and you act in such a way that will please your Lord. And you do that because of his great power, his glorious power, it says in verse 11. That gives strength, that gives joy, that gives peace of soul, and and fills you with the knowledge about what it truly means that every bit of your life, it has eternal significance to the one who created you and purchased you. You notice how it goes on there. Verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet or fitting to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints of light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Consider that That phrase, congregation, delivered us from the power of darkness. Consider what you were. If you are a Christian today, whether you were conscious of it, whether it happened suddenly or gradually, you know this. You were under the domain and the power of darkness. The evil one had you. The devil had you as his prey, as his slave, and you did the will of the devil. And so everything of your religious worship, if you offered it, it was all given from a foul, polluted heart. It was given in self-righteousness, according to pride and not true reverence or fear or joy in the Lord. Terrible thing to live, let alone die under the power of the devil. But what of this? translated, brought over into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, so that now you serve him as Lord. Is that not such a wonderful thought? Serving a master who is not a hard taskmaster, not one of these slave drivers who whips and beats his servants with impunity, no, but one who, who cares for them. And yet he treasures everything about them, even their works, even where it is so faulty and so so corrupted with imperfections, yet he, he, he cares for it and is precious unto him. Your life matters unto Christ, the decisions that you make, how you conduct yourself. It is pleasing to the Lord when you submit unto his will. This congregation is a beautiful teaching that... A Christian can confess Christ as our Lord. So I ask you, is that your confession? 
Is it not only from, from the mouth, but is it also from the heart? Do you own him as your Lord? Well, I tell you that these things are published and proclaimed, not that they would lead us to despair, but that rather we would be drawn unto Jesus Christ. He will have you as his property. He will have you as part of his heavenly bride. He will have you as his servant. Will you have him as your Lord? Amen. In response to the message, let us sing from Psalter 373, stanzas 4 to 6. Let us now pray. Blessed Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, we worship and adore you. We thank you that you indeed are our Lord. You have offered yourself unto sinners as we, and you have enabled us by your grace and spirit to receive you as Lord. And we pray that this would be our identity, that this would be our reality, which we live each and every day, which with the conscious realization that we belong not unto ourselves, but we belong unto our faithful Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We pray that we would grow in our delight in you, that every other voice and every other loyalty, that they would be in subservience unto you. 
that anyone or anything that would draw us away from you, that they would fall silent and that we would only respond to the sound of your voice. We pray that you would hear us, that you would forgive us for our sins, even in religious worship, and redeem us all by the blood of your cross, which is more precious than gold or silver. Amen. Let us sing from Psalter 373, stanzas 7 to 9. benediction we will sing uh, stanza 10 as our closing doxology now depart in peace and receive the blessing of the lord the lord bless you and keep you the lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you the lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace amen